0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, this is The Schweppe, and we are speaking with Crystal Addy, lecturer in classics at University College Cork, and a woman who knows a thing or two about ancient divination, ancient theurgy, and related matters. Crystal, thanks very much for coming on The Schweppe. Thank you
1: for having me. It's a delighted to talk to you today.
0: Now, Crystal, what's our theme?
1: So I wanted to talk about ancient philosophical approaches towards animals and the environment, which is an area that I've been starting to do some research on. And I've also been doing some teaching in this area this year. I've been teaching, a course, animals and the environment in Greco-Roman philosophy this last semester. And we were actually looking at the treatment of animals and ancient philosophical approaches towards animals, just as Europe was hit with the Covid Covid-19 crisis and so I wanted to talk about some of these ancient approaches towards these issues because they're so extraordinarily urgent at the moment and you know in relation to the whole environmental crisis that we're facing as well as um, the COVID-19 situation at the moment so Mm. I was hoping we could talk about that and then maybe also talk about the urgent approaches towards the environment as well.
0: Let's do that. And don't think you'll get away without getting into theurgy because I, and also I think a large group of the Schwepp listeners, will be deeply gutted if we don't get onto theurgy specifically. But let's talk more generally about ancient approaches to animals. The first thing that comes to my mind is Porphyry's De Abstinentia, of course, late third century treatise on why you shouldn't eat them or sacrifice them. But what else have you got? What else would you bring to the table for this discussion?
1: Porphyry's. On abstinence from killing animals or from killing in sold creatures is a major work in this tradition that really uh, argues for treating animals well and for not eating them you know it argues for vegetarianism in particular of course that work is part of a whole tradition within the Platonic and Pythagorean traditions of arguing for treating animals really really well and, you know, I think we can link that work with Plutarch's works on animals. And both Plutarch and Porphyry are very much influenced by Pythagorean approaches and particularly Empedocles, the pre-Socratic philosopher and his approach towards animals as well. And it is, in fact, the Platonist and Pythagorean traditions that I really wanted to talk about, because Uh, When we look at ancient Greek philosophy, we really see a whole range of approaches towards animals and the environment. On the one hand, we see lots of approaches that are very anthropocentric in the sense of putting human beings at the centre and saying that they're most important uh, morally and ontologically. And the Stoics would be another example of philosophers who have a very anthropocentric approach towards animals and the environment. But on the other hand, when we look at Platonist and Pythagorean traditions, we really see a kind of alternative way of looking at animals and the natural world and human relationships with them. And it's that in particular that I want to talk about, because it really gives us some alternative ways of thinking about how we relate to animals and the natural world and, you know, may give us an alternative approach towards the current problems that we're facing at the moment.
0: Okay. If it's cool with you, I'd love to st- at least dally for a moment in the 6th century BCE and the 5th yeah. century. It seems to me that Empedocles, and you know, many scholars argue this nowadays, can be seen in some ways linked with the traditions in southern Italy that we call Pythagorean. Peter Kingsley has argued this very forcefully. I don't think anyone really disagrees with him, or I don't think anyone has any... Very solid reasons for disagreeing with him. What exactly it means to say he's linked with Pythagorean movements is a bit more vague, but there's some commonalities there. And what Empedocles says that we are told Pythagoras also says is that you something along the lines of don't sacrifice that uh, ram because it might be your uncle, right? So that that's paraphrasing but the idea is we humans become animals we're not just humans so whatever our essence is for empedocles it's the daimon he doesn't talk about a soul he talks about a daimon it it has yeah. been animals before and now it's a human and later it might just become a higher being than a human so we're not just one thing and this we have a kinship in other words with other animal beings now that seems to me in a way kind of, yeah a very interesting take on the relationship between humans and animals we're, we are them and that has some parallels with modern approaches say say for example evolutionary biologists who look at the ancient forms of human beings that we know were around like the weird hobbit guys and and the neanderthalers and that there's the the line between the human and Other animal life forms seems to be getting more and more blurred the more we learn about life on Earth. So you can say, in that perspective, it's kind of Empedoclean in a way. But very few, I think, evolutionary biologists believe in reincarnation.
1: Absolutely. Empedocles was very closely connected with the Pythagorean tradition, probably a, a, a direct part of that tradition. Although, as you say, it's very hard to tell exactly what's going on with that. But as we know, he himself was from southern Italy, from the kind of areas that we know were deeply Pythagorean, uh, the kind of philosophy that he has, although we only have fragments of his works, uh, we don't have the whole of his poems or his poem. So it's very hard to tell, you know, exactly what he's saying. But what we can tell is that he's absolutely talking about the kinship of all living beings and reincarnation, as you're saying, And those are themes which are very closely connected with Pythagoras and the Pythagorean tradition. So he certainly shares with them very closely ideas about the kinship and sharing of life of all living beings. The fragment that you were mentioning is where he talks about a father lifting up his son to sacrifice him. You know, human beings don't realize that they might be sacrificing their family from a previous life. And as you say, he absolutely seems to say that human beings are these demonic creatures who live through this whole cycle or series of lives and who can be animal and human and even plants and trees and so on as well. And I've got in front of me a couple of his fragments. I mean, he says, for example, among beasts, they are born as lions with lairs in the hills and beds on the ground and as laurels among fair-tressed trees. So he actually says that human beings can, um, you know, live a life as a laurel tree, as a plant, as well as an animal. And he already says, to quote him again, for I've already been once a boy and a girl, a bush and a bird and a leaping, journeying fish. So he seems to imply that human beings can reincarnate or their soul can reincarnate across all forms of life. And in that way, he's very close to the traditions surrounding Pythagoras, who's said to have held that all human beings share with animals and plants and so on a basic level of life and intelligence. There's a lot of similarities between Pythagoras and Empedocles in that sense. And as you're saying, I mean, many people in the modern world today, especially the Western world, we might say, or the European world, reincarnation is a very strange idea for us in the West very often, Of course, there are people uh, in the modern world, particularly in Eastern traditions like the Hindu tradition, who do still hold that reincarnation is a viable, important idea, part of the fundamental aspects of life. Um, And of course, in relation to those ideas about humans being closely connected to other kinds of animals and to plants and trees and other natural entities, There are plenty of indigenous cultures and communities across the world, many of whom are really on the front lines of environmental activism. They also hold ideas about animals and plants being sacred, being alive, having a level of intelligence or consciousness. Mm. So although these ideas can sound strange to us now, there are many people in the modern world who do still hold ideas like this. Um, and who live in that kind of way as well, which is very fascinating. Again, there are some more metaphorical parallels when we think about scientific ideas of evolution um, and the idea that we were human beings have come from animals at some stage in their evolution. You know, there is a kind of metaphorical parallel there, which I think is important as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We should probably stop and define what we mean by animal because, of course, humans are animals, right? So we're talking about... When yeah. we say animal, actually, we basically mean all the animals other than humans, don't we?
1: Yes, absolutely. Which we is actually a
0: really up. anthropocentric way of looking at it, because it's like humans are, humans have their own category.
1: Yes, um, it's fascinating how these anthropocentric views are really patterned into a lot of our language as well, of course.
0: Cool. Well, let's talk about Platonism. And I'd like to come back to anthropomorphism, because one thing I found when reading Porphyry, he's he's no Arno you know what I mean? Like, at the end of the day, as a Platonist, he's definitely privileging dianoia logismos, the ability to reason, as a better thing than not having that. So a human is better than a worm, like self-evidently to a Platonist, it seems to me. So, but let's talk about about your other findings in, in this tradition and we can come back to that.
1: Well, let's just talk about that for a moment because yeah. one of the... That Porphyry does in that work, and which Plutarch had done as well, is to argue that animals do share in rationality. And while that rationality may be to a different degree than human beings, both of them are arguing that animals are rational, that they share, you know, their abilities of memory, perception, planning, and so on, planning for the future. All of these things are kind of signs that non-human animals are rational that they do have dianoia, that they're not as different from us in that respect as we might think. So actually, I'm not so sure that Porphyry would think that a worm was so different in that sense. Ants, for example, either Plutarch or Porphyry discusses how they show kind of um, signs of rationality in their planning and in the work that they do and so on. For sure. um, absolutely. I mean, he really argues very strongly along those lines. And Porphyry even says, you know, animals have language. They communicate with each other and they communicate with human beings. And if human beings listen sensitively and carefully enough, they can communicate with animals as well. And he says, just as we wouldn't see someone who speaks in a foreign language as not talking because we can't understand them. So just because we can't understand what animals are saying it doesn't mean that they're not talking and they don't have language. And of course, as we know, the word um, logos refers both to the written word, the spoken word, language, as well as reason itself. And so, you know, the language and communication of animals is, for Porphyry, a key sign of the fact that they have rationality.
0: Hmm. Maybe the thing is, I find this kind of creeping anthropomorphism in Porphyry and the other Platonists. Maybe not in Plotinus, though. Is the... I mean, maybe it's the, the faculty of noose that we have that animals don't have. Certainly in Plotinus, animals have, in, in Ennead 6-7, animals show they have Dianoia. They, in fact, show many erga, and many works of Dianoia. I assume he's referring to things like birds' nests and beehives and all the other yeah. things that animals manifestly build with a kind of plan. You know, it looks like reasoning to us. But for Plotinus we can reincarnate as animals. For the later Platonists, we don't. There's there's something about a human soul that made these guys say, no, 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 it can't become an animal. And I don't know what you think of that and how it's re- relative to this, but, but it's clear that for them, the human soul, it can be elevated above the human. So it can, for example, become one with the, the noose. It can maybe escape the cycle of reincarnation, depending on which thinker we're talking about, turned away from the body so much that it's, Ascends up and just lives in the noose forever. Yeah. But what it doesn't do anymore is become a worm. And that seems to privilege, you know, the human and the noetic over the worm.
1: Yes. I mean, how certain is it? I mean, I know there's a lot of controversy around the idea of whether or not Porphyry, Iamblichus and Proclus think that humans reincarnate as animals. Um, I'm not sure how certain that is. Hmm. I do think a lot of the theurgic ideas, I mean, certainly when we talk about porphyry, first of all, as I've just been saying, the dividing line in a sense between, and even Plotinus as well, the dividing line between humans and animals is much more blurry than we might think. And certainly Porphyry's arguing in that way in on abstinence from killing animals. I mean, when we turn to Plotinus, for example, it's fascinating because he says um, nature itself contemplates in its own way. And there seems to be an idea in Plotinus that nature is connected to nous. And it's fascinating because obviously Plotinus followed Plato's Timaeus in thinking that the whole cosmos is a living, intelligent, harmonious being that has intelligence and consciousness. And so. In the sense that Plotinus thinks that when he argues that nature also contemplates when it makes or creates, I think that he would say that nature itself is connected to
0: nous. That's uh, a really good point, that we probably should have started with that. The, the whole framework that the universe is a living conscious being that we're all parts of obviously puts things into a, a perspective where, okay, we really can have a holistic view of, of life.
1: This is partly why all of these philosophers, Plato, or at least a certain strand of Plato's writings, Plotinus, Porphyry, and the later Platonists, Iamblichus and Proclus as well, they all are ecocentric in the sense that they think that the natural world and the cosmos as a whole is this living, intelligent, conscious being that's connected in every part of it. And so, you know, this goes well beyond what uh, modern environmental ethicists call bioscience, the idea that animals and plants are also just as important as humans and have an intrinsic moral value. It's completely ecocentric because ecocentric means that even ecosystems and larger physical systems in the natural world are seen as having a kind of intrinsic moral importance in their own right. And these philosophers definitely are arguing along those kind of lines. And that really starts with Plato's Timaeus, although he's drawing on the Pythagorean tradition as well, and continues, we see it in Plotinus very clearly, and continues into later Platonism. So I think there's a really strong ecocentric basis in all of these Platonist philosophers, and they're really drawing very deeply on the Pythagorean tradition in this
0: respect. Tell me what you think of this, if uh, a difference between the traditionally religious Platonists, so leaving aside Christians and and Jews and stuff, and us moderns is, they think the universe is a kind of in a steady state, except for Plutarch, who thinks there's a kind of creation at some point. They basically think the universe has always existed exactly, actually, they think the earth has always existed exactly as it is. It will always exist. There's never going to be a, a really catastrophic change. Things are just gonna carry on, right? We think yeah. that the Earth has not always existed, that since it's existed, there have been many, many changes that have been what we would consider vastly catastrophic from a human perspective, like whole continents moving around, ice ages, mass extinctions, etc. There's going to be more of that in the future. Um, and human life is a very, f- well, life in general. I mean, some, some scientists think that this is the only place in the universe where there's life and that it's an accident and that it could just be snuffed out rather easily and in fact will be for sure at some point that's a very different perspective although i don't i don't think it invalidates taking the insights from platonism and applying them to the modern situation but you do have to translate in some way from well i'll call it a primitive cosmology and you can correct me if you think that's a, a bad way of putting it a primitive hellenistic cosmology with an earth at the center of everything to a much a much vaster and much different universe, picture of the universe.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I think it, you're covering a lot of issues there. There's a lot of different things in what you're talking about. We could go in various directions. I definitely think Platonist philosophers certainly think that the universe or the cosmos um, always will exist. There's no beginning or end to the universe or the cosmos as a whole. I'm not so sure they would see the Earth quite in that light because the Earth in that sense is part of the whole cosmos. You know, they were well aware, for example, um, Plutarch and Porphyry as well, write about big changes that happen on the Earth. They write about things like plagues and earthquakes. They were well aware of kind of the physical changes that go on on the Earth. You know, I don't think that there's any question that they were disputing that. But, of course, they're talking about the cosmos as a whole. And I think maybe the level they would see it on if we want to think of it in what it might be equivalent to in more modern terms or more modern idioms of thinking about these things is the kind of idea that energy changes but can never be destroyed. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think it's more that kind of idea that they're thinking of, you know, that there can't just be a beginning of the universe and an end. Because the energy within the universe may change from one form or shape to another, but it never ends. Um, I would kind of read them as arguing or, you know, thinking much more along those kind of lines. Although, of course, we're talking here about very complex uh, cosmological ideas that certainly, uh, you know, have lots of different aspects to them.
0: Yeah, I I guess I just think, in if I'm thinking of the ancient Platonists and what we want to keep from them and what we don't want to keep from them. I don't see a way that we keep their cosmology in the in the basics of geocentric cosmology with spheres followed by the sphere of the fixed stars with an immaterial kind of realm of noose outside it. It's like, that's just not what the universe looks like. We have better instruments, you know, now I don't see that that's so important for the metaphysical and the, and other insights of ancient Platonism. And I and I also think, to be honest, if if Plotinus or Plutarch or anyone were alive today and you could be like, right, we're going to explain some advances that have been made. Check this thing out. It's called a radio telescope. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They would have gone like, whoa, we really had it wrong about the, the physical cosmos. But, you know, so what? It's not the yeah, most important absolutely. aspect of reality.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's fascinating because that kind of geo centric perspective of the universe that of course relates to ancient astrology and ancient kinds of divination as well and there's a sense in which um, you know it has a kind of symbolic and metaphorical aspect to it as well because of course ancient astrology and divination really are talking in a very kairotic way about the perspective of the person that they're referring to So, in the sense that everyone who astrology and divination were applied to is on the earth in a particular place and it's relating the movements of the planets to that person, it may be that that can be seen symbolically. And then, on the other hand, if we read something like um, the Emperor Julian's hymn to Helios, it sounds intensively heliocentric in its cosmology. And so, there's a lot of different ideas floating around in the ancient world. And of course, Many of our cosmological ideas in that sense are very different now. And I also don't really, um, I, you know, I'm very happy to admit the difference. And I don't really think that that means that their kind of ideas about animals or the environment are any less relevant to us now. Yeah. We may just have to look at them in a slightly different context, of course. All of these Pythagorean and Platonist ideas that we've been talking about are actually deeply relevant to the situation we find ourselves in today. I really think that we need both collectively and individually to rethink our treatment of animals in the modern world. You know, it's really led us into quite a severe crisis. And in relation to that, we obviously need to think about how we treat the natural world, how we see our relationship with the natural world and our ways of living within it as well. And of course, at the moment, I think this is on a lot of people's minds because of COVID-19. And a lot of environmentalists and scientists have been talking about how, in terms of the wider factors relating to COVID-19, our environmental destruction, you know, practices such as really rampant, um, intensive deforestation and mining, um, the way we treat animals in relation to wet markets intensive factory farming and so on, set up kind of perfect conditions for um, zoonotic diseases to, to spread from animals to humans. You know, it's really vital to step back and think about how we treat animals in the environment. And one of the things that I think is very useful about Pythagorean and Platonist philosophers is they talk a lot about how animals and humans really share these basic levels of life and intelligence and how animals, non-human animals are owed justice and should be treated justly. And they argue that those animals have an intrinsic moral standing in their own right. And therefore, you know, they have a right to justice in the same way that human beings, at least most of the time, think that we should treat each other justly. So they really broaden the perspective of justice to a cosmic level, which is quite fascinating to think about. And, you know, in relation to the environmental crisis at the moment, I mean, you know, even sociologists, scientists and environmentalists have been talking about how climate change and environmental problems are ethical. So I'll just quote from Dale Jameson um, and his article on ethics, public policy and global warming. He says, the problem we face, the environmental crisis, is not purely a scientific problem that can be solved by the accumulation of scientific information. Science has alerted us to a problem, but the problem also concerns our values. It is about how we ought to live and how humans relate to each other and the rest of nature. These are problems of ethics and politics, as well as problems of science. So I think Platonist and Pythagorean philosophers really offer us a set of deeply considered and profound and quite extraordinary ethical reflections on the relationship that we humans have, both with animals, non-human animals, and with the natural world itself. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, these views really have extraordinary parallels, both with Eastern traditions like the Hindu tradition, like Tibetan religion, and, and also with indigenous traditions and cultures and communities, the latter of whom really use their own worldviews, their own uh, relationship with the natural world to really campaign actively for treating even ecosystems and natural entities like rivers, mountains and so on with, the ki- with a kind of ethical respect um, and justice. And I think it's really important for us here in Europe to think about these ideas because they are part of our own kind of cultural inheritance, so to speak. You know, they're part of our own cultural ancestry. You know, they're not just Eastern, they're not just indigenous. You know, they're part of where we come from too. And so a lot of my own research and thinking has been to explore in greater detail how we might think through These traditions, which, as we know, of course, have been very marginalised within the history of philosophy and within history more broadly. And really, I think, deserve to be much more broadly known among the public and much more broadly known in the Western world as an important strand of philosophical, religious, ethical thinking about the world that we live in. I don't know if you want to go on to talk about theurgy, because obviously theurgy takes these ideas even further than what we've been talking about already.
0: Let's do it.
1: Excellent. So um, what's really extraordinary about theurgy, I mean, they draw on all of the ideas we've already been talking about. So theurgy is deeply influenced by the Pythagorean and Platonic traditions. You know, it's actively part of the Platonic tradition.
0: Can I stop you there? Can you give me your working definition of theurgy? because um, there's a lot of different definitions out there.
1: I'm a scholar who tries to define and think about theurgy in quite a broad sense as well. So I would highlight to your listeners that my definition may be different from other definitions they've read or that they've come across. I would broadly define theurgy as a way of life or a way of being, a lifelong endeavor, or possibly, given the ideas that we've been talking about involving reincarnation, maybe a multi-lifelong endeavour even. Yeah. You know, it centralises a set of ritual practices based on polytheistic pagan traditions, but also sets them alongside the cultivation of ethical and intellectual capacities as well. So that's a very kind of basic definition of theurgy. Of course, it's very difficult to define. There's always something mysterious about theurgy. Literally, it means God work, And it seems to refer in another way to the ascent and connection of the soul with the divine and the consequent kind of manifestation or expression of the divine in human life or in the natural world in some way.
0: Um, Does the pseudo-Dionysius, the Christian theurgist, does he fall under your um, definition?
1: That's a fascinating question. It's very interesting because one of the things I wanted to talk about in relation to animals and the environment and theurgy is the fact that theurgy, at least in the view of Iamblichus and Proclus, theurgy works through human souls and through nature, through the natural world. And so I'm very undecided, let's say, about Pseudo-Dionysius and about Christian types of theurgy because Very often, although again, you know, there may be other dimensions that I'm not fully considering here, but very often those kinds of theurgies seem to possibly marginalize or overlook the natural world and also bring in Jesus as having a kind of central role within it. And I'm not sure if that's quite the same thing as what Iamblichus and Proclus have in mind.
0: So can you fill in the gaps here we've got the theoretical framework we know it's a sort of way of life involving both ritual integrated into a whole philosophic curriculum which involves the virtues it involves taming the passions it involves learning mathematics it involves being a vegetarian for these guys it involves lots of stuff what are they doing that's specifically theurgic and maybe what's the theory behind it and why is it relevant to the environment
1: yes So just to say, first of all, another, obviously, I'm going to say something now, which anyone who knows my work will be expecting. But another kind of central aspect of theurgy that we haven't mentioned is divination. Mm. And divination is really a major part of theurgy. So that the theurgist ritual practitioner is really aiming to use divination in their ritual practice to kind of gain a deeper, attain a deeper understanding of the world around them, and particularly of the divine and the gods and the divine, you know, the divine world as well. So, you know, divination is really central to theurgy, and that's just something that I would always emphasize. Mm. Um, And of course, in that respect, one of the kinds of divination that theurgists were using was the animation of cult statues of the gods, and the construction of them, and then somehow using that to get some kind of divination as well. So that's a major aspect of theurgy, um, the use of statues of the gods. So I just wanted to add in, you know, this is something that I think is really vital to the theurgist who actually aims to become a prophet or a prophetess, a seer in their own right.
0: And it's interesting from the perspective of a maybe a broader sense of what is alive in a meaningful sense than would normally be considered, the fact that not only are all the obviously living things like plants and animals and humans alive and in uh, But you can make a statue come al- be alive. So when people talk yeah. about animating statues, it's worth emphasizing the etymology of animate, which is to put an anima into something too. It's not just to make it move, it's to make it alive. So they really think they can make life forms.
1: Or evoke, let's say, evoke life forms. Because, yeah. of course, you you bring very, us very nicely onto talking about the environment in relation to theology. You know, theurgists held that everything in the natural world, every kind of natural, what we would call a natural object or entity, and that includes gemstones, is connected very, very closely with the divine and manifests the divine or expresses the divine as well. So gemstones, of course, and other kinds of natural materials would have been what these statues of the gods were made out of and something that the theurgist was clearly using in these rituals. And just in relation to that, just to talk for a moment about the use of symbols and tokens in rituals, in this view of the world that emerges from the more general Pythagorean Platonist view that we've been talking about, what we see in theurgy is, and of course theurgy in this sense is very much drawing on traditional Greek, Egyptian, Syrian practices, polytheistic pagan practices, which saw um, all the different animals, and natural entities like trees and plants and gemstones, each of which were connected to a very specific god or goddess. And the theurgists like Iamblichus and Proclus really say that all of those things are connected in what they call sympathetic chains linked by cosmic sympathy or sympathia, and so have this natural inherent connection to the gods. And so the theurgist really takes, when they're doing a ritual to a specific god or goddess, they will take the the symbols, what they call the symbols of this god or goddess, as a way of evoking the presence of the deity, the god or goddess, within their own consciousness. Of course, Iamblichus would say the gods are always there, they're always shedding their lights and their illumination on human beings. But for us to tap into that, we really have to draw all of these things together. And so both Iamblichus and Proclus talk about how, for example, Let's take Proclus on the sacred art. He actually gives us some examples of how this is working. So he talks about the solar chain that follows and is connected with the sun god Helios or Apollo. Now, hang on a minute. Can you
0: back up and just tell us what he means by a chain? Because that's not going to be readily apparent to every listener.
1: Yes, absolutely. So the word here in Greek, of course, is sera. And we might use the word series. You know, this is a whole set of things in the natural world and of course it also includes planets as well because the sun is in the chain of the sun god you know Venus the planet Venus is in the chain of Aphrodite and so on as well but in terms of natural entities and objects the idea here is that there are a whole series of things um, a series of beings that are connected to a specific god or goddess so but they somehow have characteristics that are related to that god or goddess and have this kind of inherent ontological connection in their very being that relates them, that connects them to that deity.
0: So like the metal copper all over the world has a connection with Venus, the visible god in the sky, the the planet Venus, which in turn has a connection with Aphrodite, who is a noetic goddess living in in the higher henads and so on up all the way to the ineffable source of everything and there's like this sort of direct non-material instantiation of these realities is that a good way of putting it
1: Absolutely. And, you know, this much broader than theurgy, this kind of idea as well. So if we took, for example, uh, the gemstone that's now called Lapis Lazuli, but that's a gemstone that's said to be in the chain or the series of the goddess Aphrodite. And in fact, in the British Museum, I know that researchers have looked at Lapis Lazuli stones from the ancient world and where they're engraved, nearly every single one has a picture of the goddess Aphrodite or her name on it. So, you know, this is a major part of pagan religion in the Greek world, the ancient Greek world, the Egyptian world as well. And, you know, other ancient polytheistic cultures around the Mediterranean have this very similar set of ideas about natural gemstones, plants, animals, and so on being linked with particular deities.
0: Now, from a text critical historical perspective, just to be kind of like boring for a moment, we have... A literature from antiquity and certainly from the middle ages which most people would classify as occult sciences rather than philosophy things like books of correspondences of material. so like um the yes. sort of gemstone texts and you know some travel under the name of hermes some there's some pseudo aristotelian ones the properties of plants the properties of ge- the, the occult properties of stuff yeah and absolutely. so one could say that One thing the theurgists are doing is taking that demotic, arguably non-philosophic literature and integrating it with philosophy in the same way as they're taking what many scholars would consider demotic ritual practices, like just stuff that religious people were doing at the time, and philosophizing it. And you see this in young arguments with porphyry where porphyry saying yeah but what about these rituals that you know like standing on characters and and doing this and doing that and and young is saying "Mm -hmm," and this is philosophically good i know you think it's just kind of stuff that the riffraff do that isn't philosophic worthy of philosophical attention but actually it is right
1: yes i mean from one perspective you're absolutely right um what's the other perspective uh, you know, at the same time, I do think we have to be careful because um, there are at least certain strands of ancient philosophy which had always been connected very closely with religion and ritual to the point where even separating the words we use to describe them is, in a sense, anachronistic. And here I'm thinking of, for example, Parmenides, Empedocles, you know, Pythagoras right back. You know, we we were talking earlier about the 6th century B.C., Right back in those pre-Socratic philosophers, we see, you know, at least among some of those philosophers, uh, a way of looking at philosophy that already is very ritualized in some kind of way. Of course, Parmenides' poem comes from the goddess. So, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, again, you can look at it in both ways. There's a sense in which in late antiquity, there was this linking up of ritual texts and traditions more explicitly with philosophy. Possibly because those religious ritual pagan traditions were maybe under threat Mm. at that time from the spread of Christianity and so on. And so it becomes more explicit in a way. But was there something of that always in the tradition, at least in a certain strand of the tradition? My own inclination, as I'm sure you know, is to think that this really goes right back to the Pythagorean tradition and to what we know of the very roots of Western philosophy in Parmenides and so on.
0: I'm with you 100%. Um, But what I would say is that there are at least some ancient philosophers, and Porphyry is a perfect example, who are arguing from within the tradition that that, that, and that don't belong in Platonist practice iamblichus and is saying oh yes it does so there are intra-philosophical arguments and there i think also if we were to include in this debate people like atticus and um, Alcinous, so our middle platonist authors who just write this very dry kind of these are the teachings of plato in in a way that you know modern analytic philosophers would recognize as philosophy even if they still thought it was weird because it has gods and stuff in it they would probably be like iamblichus you're crazy this isn't platonism sorry go on we have
1: well, there as well, because, for example, Alcanus and so on were writing handbooks of Platonism, right? They were, in a sense, that may be more to do with genre. I agree. That they're writing for beginners in philosophy, that they're looking at it from a certain perspective, maybe that's more appropriate to beginners. When it comes to Porphyry, again, you know, my own work has argued that Porphyry is a lot more positive and sympathetic towards traditional religions and even theurgy than most scholars think. And for example, I would not see the letter to a as a kind of attack on those ritual practices, but more as a kind of deliberate set of questions asked for educational purposes in order to get a kind of comprehensive view of ritual phenomena from Iamblichus for philosophers, but also for, you know, the more general would be readers um, of that work at the time. Hmm. So, you know, I don't really see Porphyry as anti-religious. I don't really see the letter to Aniba as a sceptical attack on religion in the way that many scholars do. Um, you know, we know Porphyry writes about traditional religion in almost every work that we have of his from various different perspectives. He's deeply fascinated by it. And, you know, his work, The Philosophy from Oracles, which only survives now in small fragments, that's the work I've really done the most work on. And in that, you know, he clearly thinks that oracles many of which came from traditional religious oracular sanctuaries are deeply valuable for the philosopher and that we can learn a lot about the divine and the divine world from those traditional oracles. So I, you know, I personally wouldn't see Porphyry as being kind of anti-religious in the way that is the kind of more conventional view among scholars.
0: Well, I I really like your reading actually. I think it's a very interesting reading as I approach this new edition of Iamblichus' De Mysterious, which has now been uh, retitled The Response to Porphyry, which is probably a better yeah, a better I name in the Budé edition. Um, I will definitely keep that in mind, but it seems to me that Porphyry's points are more just unspecifics. Just like, what about this ritual where you're threatening the gods? How does that make sense? And, and Iamblichus is like, well, we're not really threatening the gods. We just use these these words that... The gods understand. It doesn't matter if we don't understand them. It's, you know, this sort of thing, um, this theory of sympathies as applied to human language. So certain words just channel certain divine energies into the, the cosmos in, in a given place where the ritual is happening.
1: Yes. I mean, even Iamblichus says in The Day Mysteries that Porphyry's questions come from different sources and that there are at least three different sources of the questions that he asks. So, um, you know, scholars have tended to equate the questions that Porphyry asks in the letter to Anibo with Porphyry's own personal views. Ah. That or may not be the case. And there's certainly evidence that Porphyry's taking a really wide range of views that were common among different groups at the time and then asking questions based on those views in order to get this kind of comprehensive or wide-ranging view of ritual from Iamblichus. It's very apparent in the beginning of the Day Mysteries, where Iamblichus is saying, you know, there are these different sources for your questions. They're taken from a wide range of perspectives. Um, you know, Iamblichus himself is explicit that these questions are very wide and that they're not necessarily Porphyry's personal opinions, or, or at least not all of them are. It's often very hard to tell where the specific questions come from. But there are certain questions where we know, for example, There's one or two about divination that are very clearly the kind of questions that Christians were raising Mm. about divination, pagan uses of divination. And we know that Porphyry wrote against the Christians. And so I've argued in a lot of my work that it's very unlikely that Porphyry held those views specifically that divination comes from bad diamonds when that's really a Christian view. And elsewhere, he argues very strongly against the Christian's. And also, in other works like "On Abstinence," he very clearly follows Plato in saying that divination is transmitted by good daimons, not the bad ones. So you know, elsewhere in his works, he says things that actually contradict some of these questions. You know, I do think we have to be very careful how we read the letter to Anebo. The questions are not necessarily Porfrey's own personal views in every case.
0: Very interesting. So there we go. In the process of talking about the relevance of uh, ancient Platonism and theurgy for the modern environmental crisis, we've had a very interesting and thought-provoking reassessment of the epistolary exchange between Porphyry and Iamblichus. No one can say you don't get your money's worth on the Schwepp.
1: It would be uh, great to go back just to talking about some of the other implications of theurgy for the environment. Let's do it. And I mean... One of the things I've been looking at lately is the very short work by Proclus. Again, only part of it survives on the sacred art or on the priestly art. And it's absolutely fascinating to me because uh, when Proclus is talking about these different series of the gods, the symbols, the natural entities that are these symbols of the gods. And so therefore, everything in the natural world in this view is sacred to the gods. And this is a really fascinating way of looking at the world to me. You know, one of the things that Proclus says when he lays out this chain or this series of the sun gods, he talks about sunflowers, heliotropes being in that chain of the sun gods. And as well as things like the lion, the cockerel, he says the cockerel greets the sun god every day because it has this awareness of the sun god that it's naturally linked to. And I just want to read a little bit from On the Sacred Art, because he says, why do heliotropes, sunflowers, move together with the sun? Selenotropes with the moon, moving around to the extent of their ability with the luminaries, that is the sun and the moon of the cosmos. All things pray according to their own order and sing hymns, either intellectually or rationally or naturally or sensibly, to heads of entire chains, i.e. the gods. And since the heliotrope, is the sunflower, is also moved towards that which it readily opens, if anyone hears it striking the air as it moves about, he perceives in the sound that it offers to the king, the sun god, the kind of hymn that a plant can sing. And so in this extraordinary passage, Proclus is actually saying that even flowers, even the sunflower prays and sings a hymn to the sun god as it moves and its leaves open up. It's really an extraordinary way of looking at the natural world. Not only are these things sacred because they express or manifest the gods, the divine, um, you know, but they actually themselves have this kind of consciousness, this intelligence, this awareness, this life where they themselves have some level of awareness of the god whose chain that they're in. And, you know, he says similar things as well about animals. I mentioned the cockerel. And the way that it crows in the morning when the sun rises, you know, Proclus explains that that's greeting the sun god. And it's fascinating to me when I was recently looking at this, I found some of these ideas even earlier than in theurgy in Greek culture. For example, I just want to read you a bit from Plutarch in his work about it's called The Cleverness of Animals. Mm. And he says about elephants, elephants exhibit a social capacity joined with intelligence. um, Elephants pray to the gods, purifying themselves in the sea. And when the sun rises, worshipping it by raising their trunks as if they were hands of supplication. For this reason, they are the animal most loved by the gods. So, you know, these extraordinary ideas about plants, flowers, trees, animals praying to the gods and singing hymns to the gods, as well as being kind of naturally sacred and connected to them. It's a really strong and powerful and extraordinary idea in theurgy, but it's also there to some extent in the wider Greek and maybe Egyptian culture as well. Just really extraordinary ideas when we think about some of the ideas of indigenous cultures around at the moment about rivers and mountains being sacred, yeah. and you know having a kind of living awareness or consciousness themselves. you know these ideas are very, very similar. And in my future research, I hope to explore more of those kinds of ideas and those parallels that are going on, not just in terms of researching them out of the general interest in itself, but also in the sense of thinking about environmental activism and, you know, how we might, from our own perspective, from working on this extraordinary ancient philosophical, theurgic, religious material, how we might support indigenous peoples who are doing such amazing and important environmental activism and work at the moment as well. It's fascinating, I mean, when you think about all those pipelines that are being built, and of course the indigenous peoples are among those who are really protesting those pipelines, precisely because they cut across land that is held to be sacred.
0: It is fascinating, and I think, just riffing off what you've just said, I think maybe a problem When you get, you know, a a protest against a pipeline, like in, in, was it North Dakota recently? In the last few years, there's been this very dogged protest against this, let's face it, unnecessary and potentially disastrous pipeline bringing tar sands, filthy oil down to some refineries, I think, in Louisiana. I mean, someone's going to make money from it, but it's not a good idea in any other respect.
1: Absolutely. People are saying
0: these are our sacred lands, right? Now, I think a problem here, a problem of communication, is for a post-Christian world, when you say these are our sacred lands, people think of something like church, you know? And so yeah. what these people, these primitive people are talking about is like building a pipeline through the church. And that's bad. It's like, no, 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 they're not talking about church. They're talking about a different idea of the sacred. You've done a really, a really good job in this conversation of giving depth to a a completely different way of looking at the sacred, which has to do with life engaged in a a cosmic and hypercosmic web of life where everything is worshiping and everything is alive and everything is part of everything else. The post-Christian idea of the sacred, especially in a kind of reductionist, Protestant, literalist context, right? The two ideas of the sacred have nothing in common except the word sacred. So a lot gets lost in the translation. So one very cool thing that could come from Westerners looking at this material in a really engaged way, not that I think that's gonna happen on any wide scale, but it's a it's a great um, thought experiment is to think, okay, when we say sacred, we're ta- We're not talking about church. We're talking about something different here. The ancient Greeks Absolutely. were not talking about church, you know? They didn't have this this concept of a, a kind of dead cosmos with a special place that the priest is consecrated, and that's the sacred, and that's it. The water's sacred once the priest has blessed it, and then it becomes holy water, but before that, it's not. It's like, no, 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 the water's just already sacred, you know?
1: Absolutely it's a very different way of looking at the world, as you're saying, you know, um, I really think, first of all, uh, there's many people in the West who don't even really know about these ideas, particularly in relation to ancient philosophy, um, you know, ancient history within Europe and the fact that many of these ideas are part of our own kind of history as well. And I think, you know, we, these ideas can sound very strange to some people although I don't think they're as strange as we think. But, you know, I think the first thing we need to do is really get these ideas out there to more people because, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about decolonizing philosophy because obviously philosophy um, is very often European, Western philosophy, and yet there's philosophies from all over the world, African, Indian, Chinese, and so on. And in a way, this is part of decolonizing philosophy and also looking at more marginalised worldviews that still may well be extremely relevant to the world that we live in today. Actually, I think that many people have some kind of maybe instinctive or natural awareness of some of these things. I mean, it's fascinating to me, for example, just when people have pets, you know, they know that animals can communicate in some way because they've kind of developed a relationship with their pets, right? And that animal is now... Um, you know, a living part of their family in a way. So even those kinds of ideas, I think people, some of these ideas are more familiar to people than we might think, you know?
0: Yeah. But to take that uh, that relationship you have with your dog and extend it to life is a, is a big leap. There was recently a big wave of outrage at the Chinese, obviously, because they're in some people's minds responsible for the COVID virus and look at these filthy foreign orientals they eat dogs i don't know if you came across this there was this whole thing about how it's disgusting because they eat dogs and even a few years ago there was a big outrage in, in britain because it was found that some beef actually had a bit of horse in it and it's like yeah. the english don't eat horse the french do eat horse what's the ethical significance of eating horse or not eating horse there isn't any it's like if you're going to eat kill big hoofed animals Everyone who Absolutely. does that is in one category. <laughs> it's Absolutely. not like horses, but, but because we have a relationship with our, you know, English people very much like to have a little pony paddock and go riding on horses while eating a, a sausage roll at the same time. That's cool for the English and their, their sensibilities get very messed up when you kill dogs and horses and eat them. Yeah, but The step that needs to be made is to go, hang on a minute, let's examine this whole killing and eating of animals altogether.
1: It's absolutely vital to think about it in those terms. And I mean, if we look at COVID-19, you know, we have to see that in, the wider, in a wider perspective in terms of a much wider picture. In the last 20 years alone, there's been six or seven viruses or diseases across the world that could have become pandemic. We've had SARS, MERS, Ebola, avian influenza, swine flu, and of course the Zika virus, which comes from mosquitoes who seem to be able to breed more partly because of changes to the environment in relation to climate change. And so when we look at this wider picture, what we see is that how animals are treated all over the world in every place is a problem essentially. And the kind of uh, ethical practices or unethical practices that are engaged in around animals collectively is what's causing this problem. Intensive factory farming which, of course, you know, something like foot and mouth disease also emerged in the last 25 years from intensive factory farming. Um, Intensive factory farming right here in Europe and the States is just as much of a problem as anything that we might see in other countries. We have this worldwide global problem about how we treat animals. We can't just reduce it to any one place. You know, we really need to think on a very kind of global scale both about how we treat animals and the natural world. And, you know, one of the reasons for talking about indigenous traditions is that they do have this very different approach, which, as you're saying, they're seeing the sacred in a much wider, more ecocentric perspective. And I think it's really important that we start thinking about that in a broader way. With the COVID-19 pandemic, if we don't go to these root causes that, you know, are much wider... That relate to other viruses and diseases that we've been seeing in the last 20 years with increasing frequency will be faced probably with worse pandemics and viruses in the future. So we really need to address these issues on a much wider scale in my view.
0: Hmm. Can I ask you uh, at least one very irresponsible question involving huge meta-narratives and, and very great generalizations? If there was this ancient view, at least among a certain class of, of thinking Greeks that we have remnants of, and, and as you've pointed out, it's not just the theurgists who think of animals this way, but there's folklore about it as well. The Greeks obviously lived a lot closer to the animals and plants around them than we, than we do nowadays, a lot of people nowadays. Yeah. If there is this, this perspective in, in antiquity, and it's interesting that you refer to the fear just as a marginalized tradition, because, of course, they are marginalized in the late third, early fourth century with the rise of Christianity, but Platonism in the earlier times had been much more what I would describe as an elite tradition rather than a marginalized tradition. Very wealthy, slave-owning, often minor politicians like people like Apuleius or Plutarch who um, have the leisure to pursue Platonist philosophy who are like the cream of Roman society, basically, are able to pursue it. But in this period, it's more... Of course,
1: there may well be exceptions too. I mean, Socrates, for example, did not come from such an elite background. Not at all. He seems to have literally been someone who would talk to anyone. Uh, You know, his parents had a much more, much more kind of lower social status in terms of their jobs and their lifestyle. So, you know, I mean, it's not wholly elite you know, I I agree. Largely, of course, we have to say that, but it wasn't wholly elite. And, you know, the issue of slavery, of course, is very fascinating as well, because there are stories about Plato himself being captured as a slave and taken into slavery and then later uh, freed when his friends paid to have him released. So there's all kinds of issues around that. I mean, Plato's Mino has this slave boy, takes this slave boy and Socrates uses the slave boy to show, um, you know, this theory of recollection that we all have this inherent knowledge. And I find this very fascinating that Plato um, has Socrates use the slave boy to do that, to do all these mathematical kind of um, geometrical things which are supposed to prove his theory of recollection about how knowledge is innate within all of us. Because, of course, you know, that's interesting in relation to slavery at the time which was very widespread practice in all ancient cultures. Mm. So there's a lot of issues going on there.
0: Yeah, that's another one to talk about. That would be another interview, a very interesting interview. Um, this being the case, we have this ancient tradition. Let's just talk about theology. Uh, let's talk about late okay. antiquity, where Platonism, traditionally religious Platonism, is a dying breed. They might not know it yet, but it is in retrospect. The Christians are going to take over. hmm what do you think happened whereby that connected perspective on the natural world just died out seemingly or is certainly not dominant in let's say the christian middle ages certainly not dominant in post industrial societies which see the world as in terms of instrumentality you know these pigs they're just pork basically we can we can consider them as how much pork and bacon we get from them that's all that matters about pigs end of story right oh they have a disease okay antibiotics oh they have the foot and mouth disease okay well um burn them all and claim the insurance and then start again like this kind of approach to living things Mm -hmm. um
1: that kind i mean that kind of approach which is wholly anthropocentric of course you know it's fascinating because you can see strands of that already in greek philosophy with certain works of aristotle definitely with stoic philosophers And then the early Christians in late antiquity really took those ideas from Aristotle and the Stoics, um, combined them with the section of Genesis, which talks about God giving humans dominion over the earth. And that really kind of affects um, not only the development of Christianity itself, but also the modern industrial and post-industrial worlds in the sense that that is part of our worldview now. That kind of story has really been told by Richard Sarabshi in relation to animals. He talks about how anthropocentric views of animals come really from early Christian thinkers and how they took these ideas from Aristotle and the Stoics and then moved them forward into Christianity and so on. Um, That story is very well told out there. Of course, we should notice that even in Christianity, there are alternative strands and alternative ideas like the life of St. Francis of Assisi, for example. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so it's not a monolithic story. Or Hildegard. Hildegard, absolutely. Very, very important figure in the history of Christianity.
0: So th- this is the irresponsible question I wanted to ask you. By citing Sorabji, I think you've made it less irresponsible, the answer you've given, because it's kind of almost a cliche, Um but... I'm wondering if it's a cliche because it's true that if we have to tell a very simple story about a very complex phenomenon and a complex cultural change, we can trace the separation of humans from nature to this development within Christianity, which, as you say, isn't monolithic within Christianity and has had lots of kickback, but nevertheless is a major intellectual strand within Christianity. And you're saying, yeah, we sort of can. And so is Sarebji. Although by adding in the the selective use of of Aristotle and the Stoics, I think you you nuance the picture more, right? You make it more
1: detailed. We have to be careful because there are ideas, again, which many Christian thinkers take, even from Platonist philosophers about participation in God and so on, which may add further nuance and subtlety to the overall picture that we're painting here. So we do have to be very careful But there are many scholars and environmentalists even out there who have kind of, you know, looked at this whole kind of history in these terms. You know, I don't think that we're really saying anything new here. There's certainly a dimension in which those Christian narratives coming from Genesis have certainly affected the modern world um, through the influence of Christianity on the modern Western world uh, in particular. Mm. Again, I do feel it's important to emphasize for any Christians that may listen to this, that there are other narratives within the Christian tradition. And St. Francis of Assisi and Hildegard are just two of the most famous examples of really important central Christian thinkers and figures who really thought in a very different way
0: indeed. I would emphasize the alchemical tradition here as well. I don't know what you think of this, but especially in in the post-Reformation alchemy, where you'd get the idea of salvation going again from just individual humans standing before God at the end of time, salvation, to the whole of the creation needing salvation and needing to be kind of raised up. And suddenly things are full of spiritus and they are alive. And there does seem to be a kind of panpsychism in a lot of alchemical mm-hmm. uh, literature of the early modern period. And this is all Christian stuff. Right, So these guys are, are moving from within Christianity via an esoteric occult science of alchemy into a panpsychic view of the world in which, again, you could find um, reasons for respecting animals and respecting plants and things like that. I don't know if we have any apologies for the rights of animals from alchemy, early modern alchemy, but um, maybe some alert Schwepp listener will get in touch with just such a text, you know.
1: I mean, you know far more about alchemy than myself, but I'm sure that's an important part of the picture as well that we're talking about here. I'm Absolutely.
0: Definitely interested in life in all its forms, and it's in things like metals, you know?
1: That's exactly, I mean, it's closely linked with theurgy anyway, right? Alchemy. And, you know, we have Zosimus of Panopolis and other alchemists in late antiquity operating within the same kind of religious, cultural miller as the theurgists. You know, and the definite overlaps and parallels between them. So, absolutely, I'm sure that alchemy is a really important part of the wider picture here as well.
0: Mm. So, what do you think the new the new theurgic activism looks like going forward? Another irresponsible question. How would you envision a a theurgic environmental movement? Well,
1: I certainly think theurgic environmentalism or environmental activism you know, may well have an important role to play in the future. And certainly a way for us to to really support, understand, um, get to know indigenous cultures and communities now is to look at this material as well and to really think about, you know, the kind of extraordinary parallels that we see between them. And just in relation to indigenous cultures, I do think that's an important part of the story. Indigenous cultures now in our historical moment are, of course, marginalised and suffer from the effects of previous colonialism and so on as well. And so there's a kind of parallel there with the urgy and Late Antiquity, which is also very important. And I've recently been looking at the work of the indigenous environmental activist Betita Cacarez from Honduras. She's won many awards for her environmental work. And... Um, she is part of the Lenka people in Honduras who think that rivers are sacred, mountains are sacred. This is all part of their worldview. And they've done a lot of environmental work to try and to keep those rivers and mountains in their natural state, to block dams and so on. Betita Cacarez was murdered in, I think, 2015. Berta Cacarez, sorry. Her daughter, Betita, has been doing some interesting work as well. And I was one of the people who was lucky enough to interview her back in March uh, about the environmental activism of her mother. And, you know, a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is to really try and look at indigenous traditions that are on the front lines of environmental activism now and think about that in relation to ancient philosophy and theology. And I really do think that we need to at least get these ideas out there to the public you know, young people across the world, including in Europe and the States, are very, very aware of environmental problems like climate change and so on. They know that these problems are urgent and are going to have a massive impact on their future. And, of course, we're all seeing they're having an impact on us right now. And, you know, we need to make sure young people have the tools, the that they have these ideas, that they can... You know they have a wider perspective on possible ways of dealing with environmental problems and or at least thinking them through so that's the main focus of my work at the moment i really hope that maybe this podcast might be listened to by young people in particular but you know the more people that kind of get these ideas out there i think the better
0: crystal eddie it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much for speaking with us and In all your public actions and uh, professional life, moving forward, stay esoteric.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Pleasure.